I guess we will get started. Um, so a couple of words of introduction um, about both the format uh, and the topic. So the topic should be understood as one of the most fundamental questions that a Jew has to have, if not every person, um, the belief in God. Um, and uh, we're going to discuss it. Um, and there are lots and lots of perspectives, both in our sources, as well as out there in the, in the world, in the world of thinkers, in the world of non-thinkers. Um, and um, it's very instructive to hear how the two of us approach such a deep topic from different perspectives. Um, I just want to emphasize why this topic is so really important, and I'm not sure that it's um, taken as seriously as it needs to be taken. Um, and that's the Pasuk uh, in Dvarim, which says, Ubikashtem misham et Hashem umatzata. You have to seek out God and you will find Him. Ki tidrishenu b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha. You have to proactively seek him out with all your heart, with all your soul, meaning this question has to bother you, and you have to reach a conclusion. You have to say, well, we can't know, and therefore, see, that's not good enough. This is so fundamental that we really have to be thinking about it, and we have to reach conclusions, or possibly reach a conclusion that we can't reach a conclusion, but I hope that after you hear the, t- the two perspectives that we have, and they are different perspectives, you will um, realize that it is possible and it's imperative to reach a conclusion. So with that intro, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Lerner to start uh, his presentation, and then I'll have a few words to say on mine. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you all for coming, of course. And uh, once again, this is an honor to do this with the Rav. And I always repeat whenever I do this, it's humbling to do it with the Rav as well. Um, Having a discussion about belief in God is like a super loaded term. I mean, it's heavy with, I mean, whichever culture you come from, it's a a heavy laden term. And it's the type of conversation that will make any sort of internet forum forum blow up. Because everybody has their opinion on this topic. And what I want to do is really just give a personal perspective about how I journeyed through this topic. In, um, I think it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in uh, a Letter in the Scroll, or as it was called in England, Radical Then, Radical Now, where he describes his why for Judaism. He said it's a very personal question. It's not that I can give you a perspective that a person could be like, that, 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 that is the universal. It's not anything universal. He describes in that book how he's giving over his vision. And if there's aspects of his vision that you appreciate, you're welcome to them. And in that same spirit, I want to tell you my vision that I've developed, or more keenly, just to feed off what the Rav just said, I'm still developing. By no means is this an open-shut case. No, by no means am I settled with my perspective. I think that's key to the idea of Jewish emuna. It's like, it's not a, it's not a binary thing. It's, it's, it's a relationship of movement. We don't, we don't talk about in, uh, in Judaism as a, like, have you done the emuna thing yet? That doesn't make sense from a Jewish standpoint. We, we talk about growth in emuna. The notion of faith for the Jew is, is a journey. It's not like you've, uh, you believe in Jesus suddenly. That's a binary choice. You can accept it or you can reject it. For us, it's going to be a journey. So I want to describe a bit of my journey. 
I touched upon these things a couple of, probably a year ago at this point, when I came in and gave a presentation to the yeshiva alone. But the topic of belief in God. So when I was in yeshiva, like you guys, um, I went through a stage where I started really investigating this question. And a person said, but you're in yeshiva. Yeah, exactly. Being in yeshiva, people assume like, oh, obviously you've got those sorts of things solid and sorted, but absolutely not. Especially the yeshiva I was in, these ideas I'd sort of taken as assumptions, done some sort of childish Kiravi book look through when I was a kid. But then as I got older and I intellectually developed, I realized my conceptions of God hadn't really developed with me. Yes, I'd read all the Kiravi books, but they don't do justice to how hopefully your mind will develop, especially in the secular age in which we are living. What I mean by the secular age in which we are living is that it's not the world that encourages the idea of any form of transcendence. The, the primarily most philosophers, most scientists reject the idea of transcendence or a belief in God. So you're swimming against the tide. And when you look into this, especially on the internet, because I was born up in that, I was brought up in that age, that if I had a question, I went to the internet. And then I found, well, what a lot of my rebellion were saying was simply speaking very naive. There were ideas that were being presented to me that clearly weren't thought, thought through. And this ruptures your childish approach to God. Do you follow? You can have a concept of God and a relationship with God, but as you start investigating and as you start questioning, that gets ruptured. And to an extent, I think it should get ruptured because we don't necessarily want the same conception of God we had when we were 18 that we have when we're 25 and when we're 30. But my journey through these sort of questions was rupturing my idea of God because I was under the assumption that these sort of ideas could be demonstrated with a certain degree of certainty. When I realized that wasn't the case. Arguments that I thought were very compelling, I felt they were actually quite decent counter-arguments for. And in my, my early 20s, when I discovered this, it was like quite, quite jarring. And through the discussion and through the journey of seeing that my initial assumptions that I was living with weren't on such solid foundations. So what does someone do? Your, 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 your conception of God has been ruptured because of more information. Not because of lack of information or anything like that. You've investigated more, which is, remember, a key principle we're encouraged to do in yeshiva. We're encouraged to be intellectually honest. We're encouraged to look at the world. We do Gomorrah all day, don't we? That is the ultimate in, hopefully, intellectual honesty, argumentation, rigorous work. But then when you take that same mind and apply it to your philosophy, to your machshava, you realize at times that, wait a minute, is this balance really good? Because maybe I developed in my Gemara skills, but now I take that vision and I put it on my philosophy of life and I realize it's severely wanting. So what did I do? Now, this is where I want to talk about how I understand the idea of belief in God. Because what started the move for me, and obviously these ideas are, would take longer to unpack fully, is really that I came to a stage where I realized that reason and why we do things is greater than simply syllogistic arguments. I think, the, I think the reason why this comes about is that in yeshiva, people sort of take half Maimonides and the sort of ikrim of Maimonides without the philosophy of Maimonides. Maimonides was a philosopher. He thought the ultimate connection to God was your intellect. And your intellectual perception of God had to be clear. And thereby, in yeshiva, people teach you the idea of ikorim. You have to believe certain things. But without the sort of more intellectual philosophy of the Rambam. So what you have is a list of things you're being told you have to believe. But there's something quite bizarre about that because you can't force yourself to believe something. If you think there's evidence is lacking or it isn't as 
to the level that you originally thought it was, you can be yelled at until the person's blue in the face. You, you can't believe things by choice. You believe things or you accept things through an experience with it, through studying it, through it compelling you. You can't force yourself to do it. So, to cut a bit of a long story short, what began to reconstruct this idea of God for me was focusing on the question, believe in God. In which case, I, I asked myself, what do I mean by that term believe? And what do I mean by that term God? Because I thought to myself that if a, if a Christian came up to me and asked me if I believed in God, maybe from a Christian standpoint, maybe I don't believe in God. Because when a Christian asks the question, they have a very specific conception of God in mind. That conception of God is very dudish. There's a dude there. That's not what I'm being asked to believe. Balancing up what the Jewish tradition is expecting of me, and can I fit into that? Can I fit into what the Jewish conception of God is and what the term belief means, and then on top of that intellectual foundation, build an emotional relationship with God? So I focused in on what the word believe means. And we know, as we spoke about before, it's the idea of emunah. And obviously lots have been said, a lot has, a lot has been said on the term emunah. And actually, by the way, it's actually, just to be uh, charitable to the Christian world, the word emunah translated into Greek is pistis, which means trust. So they're not so far from the way we understand the idea of emunah. But it means trust, which means like any form of relationship or any form of connection, you have a certain amount of intellectual foundation for it. And then the trust is, is how far are you going to go in relationship to that idea? So did I have a basis to commit myself to the Jewish story? Did I have a basis to connect myself to the Jewish message, to the Jewish notion of God? Did I have a form of intellectual foundation for that? I thought I did. I thought I did. And this is in the lines of the Khuzarian, Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, who try and balance for you the intellectual foundation as well as the calling of Judaism. And those ideas often aren't put together. Judaism isn't just a Sinai happened, but the Yodanish, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And there are arguments that try and show that it, that it, 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 there seems to be good argumentation that it's a historical event. But it's not only that intellectual idea, it's the mission that Judaism's calling you on. Judaism's a mission. Judaism's a purpose. And you see how both these ideas come together in the idea of a foundation. On the one side, what is my foundation? What is my basis for having emunah? It's a combination of an intellectual reason, an emotional calling, not emotional like crying, but saying the calls to the better part of me the mission of the Jewish people. And holding both those together became a foundation for me to commit myself to the idea of God for the Jewish people. And baked into that mission is what we mean by God. Because what we mean by God isn't this uh, believe in God in an abstraction. It, it talks about what I should do in the world. And then you get the idea of mission again. A Jew can't have immuna in isolation. It's, a con it's, it's almost senseless to say, I have immuna, but it doesn't affect how I act in the world. Emunah, baked into the term itself, has a connotation of action. It's the same root as the word umnan, a craftsman. A craftsman has an a vision in mind, and he lives it out in the world. So what was I being asked to do as a Jew from a traditional standpoint? I was asking to have emunah to the Jewish idea of God. Did I have a foundation to that? Did I have something that called me along that line? I think I did. And I say these ideas are growing and developing as time goes on. None of this is open and shut. But just to sort of structure that again, and also, by the way, this, 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 this recognition that, I, that I've focused in on what I mean by God and what I mean by belief gives me the humility, hopefully, 
and the lack of arrogance, hopefully, that when I speak to people who don't agree with me, I can genuinely have a conversation with them. Because I can see that, ah, they don't necessarily see the world the way I do, but I can appreciate where they're coming from. Because I recognize the world's not simple. I recognize the world's complex. And my basis and my structure that I felt that I was justified to build this foundation on, perhaps they haven't seen it that way. Perhaps there are aspects of my argumentation that they think is lacking. And it's not because they're being wantingly evil. There's, when I was in yeshiva, there was a, a classic idea from Rav Chana Vassman in Koivetz Mamorim, where I always struggled with, because he gives the impression that belief in God is simple. Anybody with a clear, unbiased mind would see the truth of God. And if you don't see the truth of God, based off the teleological arguments or the argument from design, um, it's an issue with you. I found that unbelievably hard to process, because I knew the argument for design had some serious issues. And what was I supposed to do with that? So I wasn't able to take that approach. I wasn't able to incorporate that way of looking at things. Is it part of the Jewish tradition, Rabbi Khanavazmi? Of course, and he was a, he was a renowned genius, and I had come close to talking about him. But that perspective on looking at the world, I couldn't incorporate. So my message in terms of how I approach this complex idea, and this difficult idea, is that on the one side, the journey is important because it allows us to develop and that's baked into Judaism itself, that the idea of your relationship with God is a development. It goes up and it goes down. The foundation of that is a focus on what do we mean by God and what do we mean by believe? And can I fit myself into that? And I felt within the Jewish tradition there was space for that way of looking at the world. And at times you're going to have to say there are certain thinkers or certain people who express ideas within Judaism that I just can't incorporate. For example, there are aspects of certain Hasidic thinking that I just can't incorporate. That's the importance of trying to get a breadth of perspectives from the Jewish tradition. So, I suppose that is a summation of how I approach this question of belief in God. Because it's a, an idea that is so rooted in how I'm supposed to act that if you look at action as being the result, what is that action based off? It's based off a philosophical perspective that is built up of both reason and a calling, which I'd call emotion or emotive. So based off the, 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 the foundation of both the emotive and the reason and the rationale, on top of that, I build my relationship with God and Judaism. And just a quick word on the idea of uh, reason and emotion or emotive. People often like to try and separate the two. And in the vision of Rav Hirsch, and this is me personally like begging up for the, the people who I follow, they, they, that wasn't that, they didn't think that was possible. You can't separate Judaism from its calling. When a person tries to present an argument that the Sinatic revelation is a historical event, however good you might think that argument is or bad you think that argument is, that in isolation is uninteresting. Did it happen? I mean, there could be shells on the beach of Bournemouth right now. The historical event happening or not is uninteresting unless you tell me what the calling was as well. Then, as a full human being, not just some sort of isolated brain in a vat, but a full human being, I can incorporate, I can view it. Because if you don't hold together both the rationale and the calling, then you, you, you have nothing to commit yourself to as a full human being. And at one point in people's lives, one of them might be weakened, in which case then they, they lose their religion. But both of them together, they play off each other. So, in, in that note, I would uh, pass it to... Um, uh, Robert Kaminsky. Okay. Um, 
So I'm going to be taking a radically different approach, um, although um, I'll maybe touch on a couple of the points uh, that Rabbi Lerner made. Um, I think that certain things that Rabbi Lerner said are not simple, are very simple. Um, and that what he said is not binary, is binary. What's binary? What's binary <coughs> is whether there is an, the world came into existence through an infinite, transcendent creator, or it didn't. In other words, the, quote, atheistic, scientific view of the world where almost you have to end up saying and one of the atheistic philosophers says well if we can postulate that there is an infinite creator that always was and was never created why can't we just say that about the world and the universe but of course the difference is whether we're talking about something non-finite and infinite or a physical universe which is finite so I think that it's a binary question Um, either there is a God or there isn't a God um but where does, that's where the journey starts. Because after I've decided, and I'll speak for a few minutes about how, why I think that the answer is a compelling yes, um, that then the journey starts, because now that I know that there is a God that created the world, I'm convinced of it, and we'll talk about why I got to that conclusion in a few minutes, but the journey now starts on, okay, how do I understand that God. What do I know about that God, about that creator? How do we relate to that God? How does that God relate to us? That is a journey. That's an ongoing journey. And hopefully when you're 30, you're not viewing, you're not answering that question the same way you did when you were 20. And unfortunately, uh, the way you were when you were 10. Uh, Okay. So, um, I don't like to use the word proof of God. It doesn't exist. The minute you talk about proof, you end up in a mathematical world with a null hypothesis. And I, instead of proof, I believe we have to use the word evidence. And here's where we come to the, again, the binary question, either yes or no. Um, so the evidence is overwhelming that there is because you have to look at the alternative hypothesis. Even though we don't talk about null hypothesis in the terms of proof, but we can certainly talk about the null hypothesis in, pro- in terms of, of reasonableness. In other words, how do you explain the world? That's the first question. And then, how do you explain the fact? And here we come now to the seniatic revelation, which again, I am absolutely convinced is a historically accurate um, uh, phenomenon. And again, but again, only because of evidence. What is the evidence? Well, Reb Simcha Kuk once pointed out to me that all the, major, the three major religions in the world don't agree about anything except one thing. There was a Sinaitic revelation to the Jewish people at Sinai. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all believe that. It's what happened afterwards that we, got, we digress. Jewish history is... The biggest proof, the biggest piece of evidence, I shouldn't have used the word proof, the biggest piece of evidence that the Jews did stand at Sinai, that the Torah is true, that the prophecies are true, the Ramban writes at the end of Sefer Devarim, that if we would know, the Ramban is writing in the 13th century, reading the prophecies that are in the Torah, 
and in the Nevi'im, and the Ramban writes that, in, I'll, I'll update it a little bit, but he basically says, if we knew for sure that this text was written by a man with a crystal ball, he, able, he knows how to predict the future. And we would have exhibit, we know for sure. And we saw all the things that are in here that were predicted that happened. And there are other things that are predicted that haven't happened. We would be absolutely convinced they're going to happen. Because the accuracy of the predictions are so compelling. And that was true in the 13th century. When we talk now about the 21st century, where the Jews are 2,000 years in exile. And then all of a sudden, an, uh, an unbelievable fulfillment of prophecy with us, our return and all of the things that the prophets talk about and all of the things that the Maral wrote in the 16th century that nobody, that everybody was depressed because it looks like Christianity's theological picture is correct. We're unchosen people. And the Ramban said, and the, and the Maral said, no, 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 it's, everything's playing out to script. And then he brings Psukim and how well, we will be back. And we came back. It's, it's mind-boggling to just make me absolutely convinced that the world has a creator, he revealed himself, and now let's, go, let's move from there. So the Ramchal says a very important point when we try to understand God. All right, we have to know our limitations. So Ramchal writes, It's impossible for us to understand the totality of the, of the reality of God because he is infinite. And the best we can do is to view it through our limited, finite perspective. One of the things mathematics shows us, if you you study set theory, is that when we enter infinite systems, our our instinctual logic breaks down. I'll just say it quickly and you can go and explore it. The proof, the mathematical proof that there's a one-to-one correspondence between the set of all integers... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, etc. And the set of all even integers, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, there is a one-to-one correspondence between them. For every integer, we can find an even integer. Now that makes no sense, because I need to use up two integers to get for each even integer. But of course, what's all? Everybody when they, of course, because they're both infinite. Yeah, but that still doesn't make any sense. But we can prove it mathematically. So we know now that our intellect, our instinct, breaks down when we get to infinite systems. So therefore, when we try to understand God, and there's a mitzvah to try to understand God, the Ramchal tells us that we're limited, because we're finite, and we're trying to un- understand infinite systems. So therefore, says the Ramchal, but we've got to do our best. And the only way, and here the Maharal writes this in the introduction to his commentary on Pirkei Avos, that man's human intellect is endowed with the ability to figure out all the things we need to figure out in the physical world. How to get to the moon, and how to cure disease, and how to grow crops more efficiently, and how to build tools and computers. Our human intellect can figure that out. The one thing our human intellect is not endowed with is the ability to figure out how to get close to God. And we want to get close to God. Says the Bible, the only way we can know that is revelation. That brings us back to the Sinaitic experience. I want to read you a line from, uh, from Rabbi Dr. Walter Wurzberger's small but very, very important book on God, called God is Proof Enough. When we talk about attempting to rationally uh, prove or show God. So, and this may be what Rabbi Lerner was alluding to before. Attempts of Jewish rationalists to prove the existence of God by purely rational arguments 
Ram, the Rambam comes to mind, Kuzari comes to mind, reflect the pre-critical acceptance of reason as the paramount device for the apprehension of the nature of reality. Nowadays, this approach is generally taken as obsolete because we take it for granted that sense perception alone, not reason by itself, can be the source of empirical knowledge, yielding information about matters of fact, but we are limited. And here I want to get to two very, very important theory, uh, uh, pr- um, theses that were discovered in the 20th century, one by uh, Gödel and one by Heidenberg. And I think that this should answer all the problems that we might confront as intellectual human beings, finite intellectual human beings, trying to understand an infinite God. So the first thing is Gödel's incompleteness theorem. I'll, I'll read you what it says in, in uh, uh, just the, the keynote of it and what that means. If you have a consistent logical system, with no con- there's a system of axioms with no contradictions. Okay? Then there are statements in that system which have to be unprovable just using that system. What that means is that there are true statements that can't be proven. If you want a system with no contradictions, you must assume certain axioms that are outside the system without proof. The minute you demand everything be proven, you run into contradictions. That's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. You can study it and see why he, how he proved it, but that's mind-boggling. What it says is, is that we can't prove anything unless we have some assumptions outside the system. There's where God comes in. There's got to be some realities outside of the system that are just accepted in order for us to have a a consistent internal system of logic. Heidenberg's uncertainty principle. Well, science was was moving ahead and realizing that everything is measurable. That's the physical world. Everything is measurable. We measure mass, we we measure the speed of light, we can measure the speed of electrons, we can measure everything. And then they found out that you can't measure the position of a particle and the momentum of a particle simultaneously. You can only know one and not know the other. It's unpredictable. It's called the uncertainty principle. So that opened the door for human free choice. Because if in science, it's almost like the electron particles have free choice, whether to go this way or that way, and we can't know till after they do it. And scientists don't understand it. It's like... How do they have... Well, okay, but then we could have free choice. Okay? Unpre- un, it's, it's uncertain. What's the outcome going to be uncertain? Let's not go in now to the reconciliation of that with God's omniscience, but that's part of the infinite, finite dialectic where we don't understand infinite, and in an infinite world, things that make no sense, like a one-to-one correspondence between integers and even integers, makes no sense, but in an infinite system, it's true. So we can understand that there are things that are true that we don't understand. I want to talk for a minute about be- the word be- about belief. And Rabbi Lerner alluded to it, but I don't think he said it strongly enough. The word, the word belief implies that I don't know it's true, but I'll believe that it's true. It almost borders on blind faith. And they accuse us, religious people, of having blind faith. 
Of course, if you study the philosophy of science, you realize that scientists also have blind faith. Okay? Uh, the, 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 the idea that the world might have come into existence from a big bang and everything is random and coincidental requires, basically what it requires is the thesis called the multiverse. There have to be an infinite number of universes so that you throw the dice enough times you'll always get an unlikely uh, result. But then the number of multiverses has to be infinite. So we both agree that there has to be an infinite reality to explain this world. Just to machlokus, what's the infinite reality? Um, but the word emuna doesn't mean belief. Tupsukim will show you that that can't be what it means. In the battle of Amalek, Moshe goes out and it says that he held up his hands and the Pesach says, Vayihi yadav emuna. His hands were emuna. And every Shabbos you say it, you probably don't pay attention to what you're saying, but in the Shabbos Psuket uh, Zimra, you talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu creating the world and you say, V'chol ma'asehu be'emunah. So that word cannot mean belief, it can't mean blind faith. It means what Rabbi Lerner alluded to, the word emunah means reliability. Moshe's hands became what we relied on. Okay, it means trustworthy. Okay, what did you say? The Greek explanation of it is trust. Yeah. Oh, well, that's correct. That's, they st- that's a correct interpretation. Okay? That when we talk about emuna, we talk about being faithful to our convictions. What maybe the modern term is you're going to walk your, you're going to actually walk your talk. Right? It's very nice. Yeah, there's a God. So what? What does that demand of you? All right? And that's where emuna comes in, that you're faithful to what you know to be true. Right, we, have, we have the, right, with the, the, the mitzvah is the yadata hayom, yadata hayom, you have to not know, you have to connect, there has to be a, a connection, Judaism demands a connection between the head, which is an intellectual conviction, that the only thing that makes sense in the empirical evidence that we observe, is that there is a God who created the world, revealed himself, the Jewish people are chosen, and the prophecies are true. When you explore the alternatives to those elements, the, the alternatives make no sense. But after that, it's v'hashivot el-lavecha. That's an intellectual realization. Hashivot el-lavecha means now you've got to connect that emotionally. Okay, so it's true in the head. But the heart is what makes you act. It what makes you responsible to behave. Just again, a couple of points on the... Um, on how compelling the evidence is. And I want to bring that evidence by listening to the atheists. When you listen to the atheists, you can be absolutely convinced that we're right. This is Richard Dawkins speaking. Okay? And this is an interview, I've I've mentioned this in the yeshiva, I think I've even taught it, an interview that he did um, for Time Magazine, a dialogue between him, the atheistic biologist, and Francis Collins, the geneticist who was a Christian Balchuva, meaning after studying genetics, he eventually became a believing Christian. And they had a dialogue about whether science proves God or not. And again, I think I showed that, that Dawkins starts the article, the interview, by saying how God delusion, 
it makes no sense, it's not true. Well, it's unlikely. Well, it's just as likely as the as our atheistic perspective. And then, well, who said it's your God? Who said maybe it's another God? All of that is just the preparation for the last line. If there is a God, he's already, okay, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. He's 100% right. The Ramchal couldn't have said it better. There's no way we can really understand God. Whatever you think, it's much more than that. Because all we know about God is what he revealed to us. But since we know he's infinite, that's what the Ramchal is telling us. The Ramchal is telling us it's going to be a lot more incomprehensible than anything anybody thinks of. That is Dawkins. There is also, I have a series of um, short pieces which was solicited by the Templeton Foundation where they asked uh, thinkers, scientists, philosophers, theologians, does the universe have a purpose? So you realize that, of course, if you believe in a God who created a world, then of course it has a purpose. We have to figure out what the purpose is, but there's got to be a purpose for a God who created it. But if you're an atheist and you think it just happened, randomly, physically, what possible purpose is there in nature? Is there in randomness of evolution? Right? There's no purpose in nature when the jackal you know, eats the, 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 you know, captures the animal, but what's purpose? So they, they have to, so the atheists have a problem dealing with it. So some of them are very straightforward and very honest. Does the universe have a purpose? Right? Williams, Atkins, no. Okay? Um, of course, Elie Wiesel said the most beautiful answer. I hope so. Okay? But here, yeah, I mean, you have no's and no's and no's, okay? Um, but listen, but so, but the, the two fascinating things I found in these articles. One, some of those atheistic scientists believe that it has a purpose, which makes no sense. And when you read what they're saying, you see that they were struggling to, because nobody wants to live in a purposeless existence. But that's really what you have. That's the natural conclusion of a world with no God. In a godless world, there's no purpose. Nature has no purpose. Nature is random. I mean, evolution is survival of the fittest, preservation of the gene pool. That's not purpose. So it's purposeless. It's depressing. So why would a human being get depressed if there's no purpose? If you believe in it, you should celebrate it. But of course, you realize then morality goes out the window then you don't have any objective morality, you just have functionality. Well, we don't kill each other because society wouldn't be a very good society. Okay, but, but there's no morality, just pragmatics. So that's a problem. And it bothers people. And the fact that it bothers people shows you that there's some dimension in the human being different than just an evolved intelligent monkey. But listen to this double talk. This is one of the, one of the uh, scientists who said that it's uh, a, a chemistry professor who says that the world doesn't have a purpose. I regard this ex- this extra, the existence of this extraordinary universe as having wonderful, awesome grandeur. It hangs there in all its glory, 
wholly and completely useless to project onto our human-inspired notion of purpose would, to my mind, sully and diminish it. Does that make any sense? Like, again, the, so he is up front. I don't think it's any purpose. And that's beautiful. Well, I don't know why that's beautiful. But there are other, other articles where they twist and turn to try to find purpose in almost like circular reasoning. So... I like another story from Shlomo Karlbach. I always tell this because I think it, it illustrates the consequences of the decision, is there a God or isn't there a God? So a woman comes up to Rabbi Shlomo and says, you know, Rabbi, I don't believe in God. Any of you who have any experience with the Kirov world knows that the Rabbi should have whipped out right, all of his proofs and all of his evidence and right, all the stuff that Rabbi Lerner started thinking about it and he didn't buy it in the end. Shlomo didn't say any of that. He says to her, okay, you want to live in a world without God? Go ahead. What does a godless world look like? You have to make that decision also. That's also part of the... Now, the atheist would, of course, say, so you're fantasizing. Okay? You, you just, it's, it's not... I think one of the languages that they used to refute an article about belief in God is they called it make-belief. Okay, so you have to look at all the evidence and say, is it fantasy? Or is the opposite? Is the possibility that everything is just random from creation, from science, from physics and chemistry and everything that went together to create the world from the time of the Big Bang, is that all random and meaningless? And therefore, immo- no more, uh, uh, amoral? Or there was a creator with a purpose and we have responsibilities to behave in a certain way. That's the journey. The journey is not to decide yes or no. That's an, by, that should be clear. You think about it. You contemplate the two alternatives. I believe the conclusion is clear. The journey starts, as Rabbi Yosheber a lot of times likes, Rabbi Yosheber Salavetsi used to say, a Jew can't know why history happens. The only thing the Jew asks is, now what? What am I responsible in light of what's happening in the world? And that's where the journey starts. Wow. I don't know if you want to respond or we want to throw it up for questions. Uh, can I respond to a couple of ideas? There's a lot to... Lot to I'm trying to pinpoint the difference between our perspectives. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, I think if I had to pinpoint it, is that, that where you ended, I think, pretty much sums it up. I think for me, the way I approach things, is that the very way of looking at the world itself is a journey. Meaning it's on a, I think, to, by the way, I, I, to, to defend uh, Richard Dawkins, I think his point <laughs> there is um, about the, his point is any theologian that he's ever heard, he clearly hadn't come to this class, but any <laughs> theologian he had ever heard articulated a notion of God that he thought was childish and, which, which by the way, fits into what you're saying. It's like, any time I've ever heard a theologian speak, God better be way more than that for you to commit yourself to him. But in terms of the, 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 the the distance is that I think that um, just to use an idea that I also found quite inspiring from Richard Dawkins. By the way, of all the atheists, he is not my favorite. I have far more favorite atheists. But um, uh, he said a very profound point. He said that he looked at belief as being a bit of a spectrum. He says he thinks he's on a, like a two, no God, and a 10 would be total God. Now he says like, he doesn't think anybody's at 10, 
or he, he says extremist people are at 10, and nobody's really at zero. He didn't think anybody was on either of those extremes. Totally sure. How would you be totally, like, how would you have that sort of mathematical proof? And totally not sure. Well, an atheist, by definition, doesn't mean he's, he, he's checked existence. No, obviously not. He just doesn't think there's compelling evidence. And he says, we're all on some sort of spectrum. And I think that's the way I look at it. I look at myself on a spectrum of, I don't even want to say more than 50%, because I don't know how I would calculate that. But for me, the commitment to the idea of Hashem, the commitment to the idea of Yadut, is enough, if I'm putting this really technically and unemotionally, enough to compel my action. Meaning, I look at it as not a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. This relationship with God of being part of the world is enough, let's say 50 plus epsilon, enough for me to commit myself to commit myself both in terms of my actions, like living my life out in the world with the principles of Yadah behind me, as well as feel justified to build a relationship with God. Because do you think, rather I think the way you look at it as is perhaps that no, like when you, you, you look at the evidence, you're good. That part is clocked. Now that doesn't move. Now you develop that relationship with God. Would that be a good way of like distinguishing the two? That would be an understatement. Uh, let me sharpen what. Let me sharpen my disagree. We finally found a point where we really are going to disagree. Um, I want to quote um, two rabbis. Um, one is a one. I'm a, I view myself as a Talmud of him of his, Ramosha Shapiro, uh, and something that Reb Noah Weinberg used to say in the early years of Kiruv. Let's start with Reb Noah Weinberg. Somebody used to come into Asha Torah, a backpacker, truth seeker. I'm an atheist. So Reb Noah's face lit up. <laughs> An atheist. I've been waiting to meet you my whole career. You're going to prove to me that there's no God. <laughs> so the guy starts fumfering and hum- well, I, 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 I can't prove that there's no God, but I, I'm not sure. I don't think. Oh, so you're an agnostic. There's the difference. So Dawkins is saying that nobody can be a real atheist. Okay, wait, we're not finished. Now, now what Reb Moshe said. So Reb Moshe used the following example. He was, he was trying to dispel this idea of mathematical proofs of God. So I'm going to come to you, Rabbi Lerner, and I'm going to show you mathematical proofs that you do not exist. <laughs> What's your reaction? It's, it's called solipsism. It's where I'm just a figment of your imagination. No, no, no. You, I'm asking you. I'm proving to you that you do not exist. So said Ramesha. Very nice. I'll use this. Right? Proofs are in. Proofs are here. I, I, I exist. How do, I, I just know I exist. Okay? So Ramesha, wait, wait. Well, Ramesha held that a person can get to that level of conviction that the, that the Almighty exists. Because if the Almighty doesn't exist... I don't exist, and nothing exists. So therefore, I disagree with Dawkins, or, or maybe what you said, nobody could be a 10. I believe that it's a Jew, a, the Jew's responsibility is to be a 10. And where do we see that a Jew is a 10? Every time a Jew was Moser Nefesh, not to be Oved Avodazar. That's a ten. Only a 10 can do that. That's my opinion. So it's interesting. I do believe that from a Jewish standpoint, you can have a 10, but in a very different way than you do. I think a person, we have this idea of prophecy, of nevuah. When a person's in a state of nevuah, if we take that concept of nevuah in its, from, from its own point of view, 
When a person's in a state of nevuah, there can be no doubt. By definition, you're in communion. You're you're in. I don't even know what the word is, but you're connected to God in the most absolute sense. But the second you don't have that, then not all bets are off. But you're back on the spectrum. That's how I. And evidence to this, I would say, is uh, that. Um, like I, I mean, I, I would evidence this. I would say is saying like we we have uh, prophets that seem to you know counter God's will ten minutes after they've had a chat with him. We just the Jewish people in the, and and I know false, he, pro- false prophets. No, Beautiful. no, no. I'm sorry. Oh. When, when a person and let's say take Jonah for example, he mm-hmm. he experienced God. There was no question in his mind. If we take the story on its own stand, that is a story of a person who was under no doubt that the entire of existence and being re- required him to travel off to Ninveh. But when he was not under a, the influence of Nebuah, he did everything he could to get out of that possibility. He got on a boat. I, in the Jews and the Jews in Mitzrayim, I mean, they 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 they, they experienced they experienced the synaptic revelation. And ten minutes later, it, it wasn't as clear as it was during the revelation. Not to say they didn't have Imuna, of course. But my point is that notion of a ten. I do agree exists, but I think that's ungraspable with if we take into account our finitude our inability to grasp the enormity of reality, that we have to go through this life as a bit of a journey and recognize that there are certain things that most things we don't know absolutely, even the, even the, that you exist. There are very <laughs> decent arguments that we don't exist. I know that sounds bizarre, but there are arguments that it, this is all a simulation. And that's, that, that's a respected position in philosophy. But my point being that the idea of the spectrum, I find personally... I suppose I find it, um, it could just be that I haven't grown to your tenderness. That could be, it could be. And with time, I could, could have this, but we could have this conversation in 10 years time and I'm like a different person. But the way I look at my relationship with that, that, that which I could never know, because the idea of knowing to that extent, like I always use the example of a muna and a table. You say, you know, God exists. I say, I know God exists. No, don't throw the stones at me quite yet. I know God exists less than this table. That's obviously saying tongue-in-cheek, but hear me out. This table I can touch. I can bang on. I can feel it. When you say that you know there's God, you mean something, but not quite like this table. You may have really good arguments that you may, but it's the concreteness of this table that I'm experiencing could also be an illusion. But the saying that I know God exists is a qualitatively different statement that you know there's a table. What is the jump between those two? A person may say, well, this belief in God is the foundation of everything. Maybe, but the the style of knowledge that you're talking about God isn't the same as that which you can touch, taste, and feel and experience in front of you. In which case, it's a qualitatively different type of knowledge. That doesn't mean you can't have it. I think knowledge can be had of the the idea of God. I think you can have knowledge of God, but you have to identify what you mean by knowledge. Because in general, that, that would be a longer conversation. But when we start talking about God being a 10, you know there's a God. I said, in the notion of Navua, I would say they had it like the table. But anything but Navua, then I, I think that we're, we're in that Dawkins spectrum. Okay, I'm going to disagree, and I'll explain to you why. Because I think you're mixing up two things. You're mixing up the existence of an infinite creator that brought everything into existence, what the Rambam writes there in the beginning of, of, Hilchus, of Hilchus Deus, that you have to know that there is a primary being that brought everything into existence, and without that, without that nothing could exist, and he's not, he's not, a, he's not imperative. I'm sorry, creation is an imperative, only he is imperative, and if he doesn't exist, nothing exists. That's all the, the Rambam, okay? That, I believe, we have, that's a 10. But 
What is the reality? How do we understand that? Oh, I understand this table very well. I can't understand what that is, and that's what the Ramchal is writing to us, is that the most we can know is that there is such a being that created everything, and everything emanates from him, and that that being is perfect, and that without that nothing could exist, and that's as far as we know. Everything else, everything else, fill in the blanks as best as you can. So, I, I, I do hear the distinction, and I think it's also important to point out, no atheist really has a problem with that God. What I mean by that is, huh. if your conception of God... Well, I think Dawkins does. No, meaning, if, if I posit to Dawkins... He says he does. I think that in the, in the interviews it comes out that he doesn't, but he says he does. <laughs> in, in some way, Aristotle believed in a God. In some way, Benedict Spinoza believed in a God. But it was the sort of overarching spirit of being, or some sort of abstract idea of God that has absolutely no calling on me. No Mechaev. That no concept mech- of God... No Mechaev. It's, 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 you, could, you could replace that with a sort of singularity, or you could replace that with really... They, that requires no personality. That requires, as, as, as a, um, I, I believe it was uh, Harris, who said that on a day where you've given me a cup, we've had a couple of beers together, you ask me, do I have a real issue with that idea of God? No. No. But what's your point? The idea of God is like, it's so, that which underlies being. It's like, the, it's like, it's like so disconnected that, you know what, that you could say, do you know that? Exactly? Yeah, you could say, well, existence holds itself up. What holds existence in being? Uh, some primary existence. Okay, I, that, that, to say that that is something that you know that compels you in any way, I think that that, that perhaps cannot be a 10. Um, but um, but uh, I suppose we could, it, could, it, could, it could develop. Should we? Let's take it. Yeah, let's open up the questions. So you were talking about like, this uh, contrast between like, knowing, knowing the table, right, which you can touch and like, you can physically experience. And knowing God, which that would be the ten of God, would be to be able to somehow experience and touch God like a table. That was kind of the distinction. Not really, not really. There's a distinction between knowing that there's a table here because I can touch it and experience it. The quality of the word knowledge as applied to the table is a different type of knowledge when you talk about God. So, but it seems like you're using that as as a kind of a detracting quality of, of the, uh, the certainty of knowing God, the fact that I can't touch God and have certainty in the knowledge of God. You, you can't have certainty. You can't, table. you can't have certainty like the table. But the, the reason I gave the example of the prophet is that, of course, he didn't touch God or, or see God either. We, we don't really quite know what that sort of prophecy was. But it was some sort of intellectual relationship or whatever you want to call it, that what it means by a personality to be in that state, if I had to hypothesize what would be a 10... Then it be, but it still wouldn't be a 10 in terms of the 10 of this table. It's, it's a qualitatively different sort of word knowledge. Okay, okay, but there's, I mean, even an atheist would agree, for somebody who doesn't believe in God, that there's tons of, of you talk about knowing things, even with almost, I would say, absolute certainty, in a human sense, in a human sense that don't involve uh, physical sensation, physical certainty. For example, I mean, that there's a president of the United States, just like an example. Maybe it's possible that you can live your whole life, or anyone here has never seen the President of the United States, never touched him, never anything, or for example, the law. But there's a certain certainty that, the, that this, this phenomenon of the presidency of the United States exists. And so you can start to trace it. Why? Because everyone talks about it, and everyone's certain about it, and you receive and you read. So you can make that same trace back to Sinai and say, okay, we have a tradition in Chochamin all the way back to people that were there. And, and we have that certainty of a knowledge of revelation in God. 
Great point, and maybe I wasn't clear enough with that, and thank you for your question. So maybe I, let me phrase it this way. Um, I agree with you 100%, but it's still a qualitatively different style of knowledge. What I mean by that is, I would go down the road you're going, but remember, this is first-hand experience. The argument you're giving for Sinai is a historical argument. It's a different type of argument. But nobody, I think, even the most radical atheist, nobody lives on just pure first-hand experience. But, but I didn't say, but hence, believe, hence, I think living a Jewish life makes sense. Meaning, I'm not arguing oh, against okay. the, the... I'm not an atheist. <laughs> it's like one of the type of things I have to like... So when, I, when I describe ideas like this, I sort of take myself out, out of it, and I describe it in a very abstract sense. Now, th- that's how I view it in a, like a, 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 an intellectual framework. I actually think I'm inside that. I live this. What do I mean by I live this is that, yes, I agree with you. I want to point out it's different than the table, which means you'd say to me, am I more sure of the synatic revelation or the table? It's like, it's a different sort of knowledge. One's a historical, one's first-hand experience. So in a way, the table. Do I think the historical argument for Sinai is enough? The historical argument for Sinai, the mission of the Jewish people, all these things that come together as an accumulative case, is that enough for me to live my life? That it's true? Absolutely. But if we break down the logic and we take it apart, and by the way, when you take something apart, you lose the phenomena that you've created. If we take it apart, then we make a distinction between the table and the historical argument. See, I'm jumping I think, I think what, I, what Ilan is saying, though, is nobody lives their life demanding conviction as, about anything the way they live their life, conviction as, uh, as, as serious a table. So I, I, for sure. So in which case, what I'm saying is the, the idea of the historical argument for the truth of the claim of the Jewish people is enough to compel my life. Is it the same as the table? I would still say no. Now, nobody, obviously nobody demands the table, but my point of distinguishing between the two allows me to talk about a bit of a, stru- a spectrum. It is enough for me to commit myself. That's all that I can do as a human being, as far as I'm concerned. I feel compelled enough to do it, to live it out, to, to, use the, the, to have a moon eye in it, to make it part of my life. Is that clear? A little bit, yeah. I guess okay. I'll just... Okay, let, let's... Yeah, let's yeah, yeah, speak up though, so the recording can also hear you. <laughs> you spoke about how you you one hundred percent disagreed with the idea of a spectrum. Um, I, I wanted to know could the no no wait I, I don't misunderstand me. I, I there is a spectrum. I think that there's a spectrum. People have different levels of conviction of something. I just held that it is possible to get to a ten. That's all I said. It's hard work. That was what I opened with. The Torah tells us it's very hard work, okay, that you have to seek him out and you have to work hard. And one of our problems is that we don't like to work too hard. Okay, yeah, right, very nice. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. Go, now let's go have a cup of coffee. Okay, so so don't misunderstand me. I didn't say that it's easy. I just said it's possible. Um, Either way, though, I still think in... With a person's MNR, with their faith, you go through stages where it's stronger and it's weaker. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That in itself, when when you can always strive to be at a stronger level of MNR, when, like, I don't think you could ever say you've reached your strongest level of MNR. And the fact that you can get to a higher level of MNR, doesn't that mean that you can never really get to 10? <laughs> Again, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the conviction that there is an infinite creator that brought everything into existence. What the Ramam describes in the beginning of Hilchus Deus. Okay, of Hilchus Yisodei I'm sorry. That, that's, that's 
is the, that's that, that I view that as a binary question. Either it happened, either that is where what happened, or it is isn't. But now the conviction, the commitment, the relationship, the loyalty to that reality. You know, a lot of times we know something. Okay, you know, the, sno- the smoker could know that smoking is bad for him and still keep smoking. All right? We live in denial. Okay, it's one of the biggest problems uh, of our society, right, is that we, den- we live in denial. Okay, we think we can print money and there won't be inflation. That's denial. Okay, so, so, so um, the, the, that's a problem. The human being has that weakness. That's, that's if you were listening to Rabbi Schoonmaker Shmuz today, that's the question of midos, of working on yourself, of conviction. Okay, that's, a, that's, where, the, that's where we have a spectrum. Absolutely a spectrum. Yeah. So you mentioned Gödel's accepted statements. Do you have like, examples of that within Judaism itself? Like, which... Yeah. We can't prove that there's God. Everything comes, yeah, there are certain axioms that the only way the system can work logically is if you accept certain axioms that are outside the system and are unprovable. He proved that in mathematics. That, that, that was, believe me, that shook the mathematical world in the 1930s, and there's still people fighting against it. No, right, so I'm curious of like, if there are examples of that within Judaism, like certain accepted statements that we have. Can you prove, can you prove mathematically? Can you prove Logically, that's that that Sinai that Sinai happened. No. Okay. So that we that's something that's outside the system. Okay, that we accept it for various reasons. And now, don't make a mistake. Girdles incomplete this year doesn't say that we accept wild theories and just make pretend that they're true. But we have certain axioms that we postulate are true because they're reasonable. And then, if they're true, the internal system now works perfectly with no contradictions. Yeah. Um, I guess this is more direct to you, Rob. Um, I'd love to hear your opinion as well. You equated God with purpose. Um, have me a God. And I didn't equate them. I said without a, a, an infinite, uh, omniscient creator, they created a world for purpose. Right. But it, the, the alternative is a random, you know, big bang, the, big bang that just happened. Everything is random, so then everything is purposeless. I mean, I, I know many atheists or agnostic people who would say that they, they do dedicate their life to, I don't know if it's working with Ukrainian refugees or something like that, or doing something which they would consider ethical. Um, they say that they're, they're donating, like dedicating their life to... I, I would ask them why. And if they say it, it's because this is what I feel is ethically... Where did that feeling yeah. come from? A monkey doesn't have it. Right, okay, okay, so you would, would you call that a purpose, though? For sure. For sure. They're contradicting themselves. They're living in an internal contradiction. That's what I pointed out in these articles by the atheistic scientists that are trying to create purpose. So some of them admit there's no purpose, and some of them do all kinds of convoluted acrobatics to create purpose. And my question to them, I have no problem with the ones who say there's no purpose. They're very consistent. Mm-hmm. Everything is random. Nothing is meaningful. The world has no purpose. It's just there. Okay? There's no purpose, right, for the bumblebee to make honey. That's not purposeful. Okay? There's, not, there's no... Right, the, 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 the fact that in the wilds, animals eat each other, that's purposeless. Okay? So they say, and therefore everything is purposeless in human interactions also. So they're consistent. The inconsistency is exactly the person you just described. Where did that come from? 
So I'll, I'll, I'll open up. There's another problem that they have. It's called the problem of altruism. Because really what you're talking about is altruism. They have no personal benefit. So how do atheists deal with altruism? So there's one of two schools of thought, contradictory on a certain level. Either there's really no such thing as altruism in the human world, because there's no such thing as altruism in the animal world. And since we're just evolved animals, there's no altruism in the human world either. Right? Everybody has an agenda. Nobody does something unless they have self-interest. Okay? Tell that to Roe Klein who threw himself on a hand grenade to save 11 soldiers. Okay? And many other examples. So one thing is there's no altruism. Or there's another approach, and I think Dawkins is actually one of the ones who promoted this. It's called the selfless gene. That no, the, the, the really evolutionary biology is also has altruism. Which is a little bit harder to write. Anyway, so, so, but again, the example you gave is a perfect evidence. To me, that's part of the evidence that there is an infinite creator, omniscient, purposeful, etc. Because the human being, and here's we come to the issue of we're not evolved monkeys, but we have a divine component that replicates the divine almighty, where that's where al- altruism lies, that's where purpose lies, etc. So that's almost them being... Godly are showing Emunah without them realizing. I think, I think they are manifest. In my book, that's one of my pieces of evidence that there is a creator who created us and we're not just randomly evolved monkeys. Can, 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 yeah. I, can I jump in on it? See, it's, it's like a quote comes to mind because my perspective, just I want to I say something for your, your atheist friends. Um, <laughs> there's a phrase by Marx that uh, something about you, you can't talk to me until you've been through the, the fire the, the, or the river of fire. Why did he call it the River of Fire? Because one of his inspirations was a chap called Ludwig Feuerbach, which means River of Fire. Very, pro- very prominent atheist, very profound. He's the guy who came up with the whole idea of God is your self-projection. And so when your fr- the reason I bring that up is because what your friends are saying, and I think that could be the point where the disagreement lies, is that if we had a chat with your friend who is dedicating his life selflessly to the Ukrainian refugees, and he says, I have purpose, it would be just a disagreement on a very particular point. He would say, excuse me, religious person, do I think I have purpose? Yes, I have purpose. When you say purpose as a religious person, you mean like ultimate cosmic universe shifting purpose. Yeah, that sort of purpose is illusory, for sure. But purpose in the meaningful sense of the word that we all use it, I think I have good purpose. If he expressed himself like that, I don't think it takes away your point. Your form of purpose, and I'm on the same page here as you, is perhaps profoundly more noble in a grand scale. Because a person can say, listen, if you're looking for a meaningful purpose, like, why God? Just help people. The point of the Jewish claim is that this purpose that we're dedicating ourselves to, on a cosmic sense, is the most noble purpose. But it's, a dist- it's, it's separating between what we mean by our terms. I'm not going to agree. No? No, not 100%. A little bit. I mean, I agree with what you said, <laughs> but I think you oversimplified it. Because I would turn to that person and say, wait a minute. Uh, according to your philosophy, that you are simply an evolved, more intelligent monkey. So what's motivating you to do this? And you're saying, well, I, I feel purpose. What, what does that mean? A monkey doesn't have purpose. Why do, you, why do you think that there is, I'll say it sharper. Why is there purpose in saving Ukrainian people? Why is that a value? Where did that become a value? Nature doesn't think that it's a value. Nature that's built on survival of the fittest thinks that it's a value. You'll pardon the sharpness of it. It's a value to get rid of the dredges of society that are preventing progress of nature. Isn't that the underlying philosophy of survival of the fittest and DNA 
pr- preservation of the DNA of the, of the of the gene pool? I would question him if again. All I'm showing you is that way down deep, he doesn't believe what he's saying. He's not walking his talk. Okay, he's talking one thing and he's behaving in a different way. That's how I see it. Okay, so it's a quick thing. That's very that. sharp. I know you can. No, 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 no. On the sharpness, <laughs> it's an interesting idea from Rav Shmuel Hirsch just to use it as an opportunity. He, he never had an issue with evolution as a uh, scientific um, description of reality. I don't either. No, sorry, no, I'm not saying you do. <laughs> I'm saying he very much articulates that point you're making of the danger of taking a scientific perspective and making a philosophy on top of it, which is the idea you're you're you're, you're countering. Um, um, so just the, 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 the danger of this form, the danger, a thing the atheist can also say that is that you need cosmic godness to help people. I, I feel compelled internally. To Where does that people. come from? The monkey doesn't. So, so there, there is an imbalance. But you, you, you Where know, did it come from? It came from... It violates... No, but it, violate, but it violates, the, it violates the, the laws of nature as set out by Darwin. I suppose we could go down the rabbit yeah. hole. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, let, we'll leave it at that. Let's go. Ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Yaakov. Uh, Rabbi Luna, so when you say... Uh, like a, You're next. Uh, so when you... you uh, Duckin', zero to ten, right? So then a five. What's a five? <laughs> because a five, between five and ten, you already believe in God. So, so, right? It's, so it's, what's, what's the... No, you believe in something. No, no, no. Uh, the, 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 yeah, you I, I have, I've, I've, honestly, I've, I, mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah, as, as the Rad said, it's like, you, maybe you believe in something. I, I don't, it's not supposed to be too... I don't think his point is that we're supposed to like, like you know... I'll, I'll say it better. I think this is the kind of a question you're not allowed to ask Rabbi Lerner. You have to ask Dawkins. Okay. Okay. Beautifully posed. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I have a question Um, I just wanted to uh, confirm, I understood what you said a few minutes ago about um, uh, uh, if we were just, um, if we were different than the monkeys, like if, if all we were was an evolved monkey, we wouldn't find uh, a purpose in, in anything. Uh, and if that's the case, like us, us finding, uh, finding a, a reason to help another being, then we wouldn't understand that we, What's motivating that? Where's that coming from? So then, That's not part of the natural order. So, uh, so, okay, fine. So I understand that, but then I have a question. When you see um, examples of animals helping people or other animals, and we've got proof of that, then, then what, what would you call that? So, A, it's... When you've got I, like a, a, a baboon saving a baby, or, a, or a, we've, we've got footage of a cheetah saving a, an antelope, that's again. That's very rare, and I, I, I it's, it's very rare. And the question is how well documented that really is, and whether this is happening in the wild or possibly, um, you know, some uh, one of the one of the things that uh, Abraham Tversky likes to point out is that we don't find obesity in the animal kingdom. Why not? Because food in the animal kingdom is only used for food in the human beings are obese because they use food to solve problems other than hunger. Loneliness, depression, right? There's one place we do find animals who are obese. Domesticated animals. They learn from the human beings. (laughs) That's Tversky's interesting point. Yeah. (laughs) Speak up. Could either of both of you speak very briefly about what we actually mean by God? 
Can I jump? Jump in. Uh, it's it's it, that's the that's kind of the idea of relating the claim of Judaism, meaning what's Judaism's goal, what's Judaism's purpose. That is baked into that is a concept of God. Now we could give a list of what's implied by God from a philosophical standpoint for the Jewish people. You can the Rav Sadiagon, the Rambam, Rabbeinu Bachai. They'll give you philosophical descriptions, but in a meaningful sense of the word the Jewish tradition calls on us to act in relationship to God. So when I say that there's a reason and there's a calling, when I say that calling, baked into that is a conception of God that can't be pinpointed. Uh, Robert, Rav Yosef Be'er Soloveitchik wrote, wrote a very, very famous essay. It's a book called Lonely Man of Faith. And he said the most profoundly lonely experience is being a man of faith or woman. And he's talking for a Jew or Christian because your conception of God is going to be very different than mine because I can't be in your head. But based off the Torah and based off our relationship with the Jewish tradition, we gain some sort of relationship with it. To paint it for you or point to different characteristics, you could try, but you're, you're always going to be lacking. I know it's not a good answer. But let, me can I, let me try to answer, again, the, uh, my answer to your question, again, is basically based on the Rambam and the Ramchal, is there is an infinite being not human, not physical, infinite being that brought everything into existence. That's the best we can do. What is, whatever you're going to say about that infinite being is going to understate. So it's perfect. The Ramchal writes this in Der Hashem and in Der Dasmus. It's perfect. It's omniscient. It's all kind. Everything. Okay? But it's beyond our comprehension. Okay? So all we know is that this world was brought into existence by something outside of the world. And it's again, it's, it's an abstract concept. It's not, it's not tangible. It's some abstract reality. But we have to know about it that that's how we exist. We exist because we were brought into existence. Okay, and here's a depressing thought. Rabbi Moshe Shapiro used to talk about this. You know, you don't have to exist. You're not imperative. God is imperative. Nothing exists if he doesn't exist. But you know what? Lots of things could exist if you don't exist. And we've got to be careful not to impute to God our picture of physicality, humanity, ourselves. It's much bigger. On that point, I hope Dawkins got it right. Okay? You know, maybe you're going to turn me into a fan of Dawkins. Because I was, I, you know, I never noticed, it was only today that I noticed that last sentence. I've been teaching this year for a long time, and I point that out, but I didn't realize the impact of what Dawkins is saying. Dawkins is 100% correct. It's, and we believe that. It's going to be way beyond. That's what the Ramchal was saying. Whatever we know about God, whatever you think, I'm sorry, whatever you think you know about God is much, much less than the reality. Not even close. I think the Ramchal even uses a language of that it's, 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 a mag, it's an order of magnitude infinitely greater than anything you could imagine. Because it's infinite. And I, 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 I like to use my point in the mathematical proof of set theory. We don't really understand the infinite. The infinite doesn't make any sense. Can I just add one quick point that in, the, in, in, in the lines of the Jewish tradition? Not that it's not a good question. It is a good question. But both the philosophers and the mystics work in the negative. To ask a Jew what you mean by God in the <laughs> dis- decision to actually define it, the philosophers retreat from that. It's called viva negativa, negative theology. They'll only describe what God is not. Because you realize any positive... Now, we don't talk like this because we'd be weird. But there's always a problem when rabbis and Jewish people talk about God. It sounds like we've just had breakfast with him. For sure. (laughs) But the point of... Firmly entrenched in Jewish philosophy and well in the mystical... As well as in the mystical tradition. To talk about the absolute being 
is always in the negative. Because to talk about it positively, you start defining it. The minute you define it, you're now talking about an idol. So... Let me make. I want to make him feel a little bit better, and I'm not sure. In a nasty way, sorry. No, no. I want to. I want to make you feel better. Ramosha Shapiro. Another statement from Ramosha Shapiro that I heard more than once. Okay, I don't want to mention the yeshiva that he mentioned, but you would think, oh, in yeshivas, everybody's learning Torah. They right. They understand. He said ninety percent. I think I don't remember whether it said fifty percent or ninety percent of the bachrim in, and he mentioned one of the premier yeshivas have no concept of God. They don't even begin to understand what it means. What's the point? You've got to work at it. That like the pasuk that we read before. It's hard work. Don't think that. Oh, okay. Right. You know, I'll, I'll Google the internet and I'll get right. Come on. Now I got a definition. I got a definition of Girdle's incompleteness theorem from the internet. Got it. You can't get a definition from God or an understanding of God by the internet. The only way is to keep struggling. One of the things that we talk about is studying God's Torah gives you almost an instinctual, intuitive grasp of what God is to the limits that we're capable of grasping. Okay, There's no question that the Vilna Gon had a much greater understanding of God than the Chafetz Chaim, who had a much greater understanding of God than right, the, you know, the Rabbi Levine, who, right, who had infinitely greater understanding than you and me. It become, it's part of work of Torah, studying, and midos. See, part of the reason we have a barrier of understanding, of grasping God, is because we're selfish, hedonistic, immediate gratification, physical beings. And that's a barrier. That's why midos is so important, if you want to grasp God. That's why the midos, uh, tikkun of midos, was a prerequisite for the sinaitic experience. As long as you are a self-centered a pleasure-seeking human being, that's a barrier for grasping God. That's one of the things that our philosopher, our, our Bali Musar tell us. Yeah? Um, would you be able to give another example of an obvious theory, uh, an obvious like, proof that, that leads to a question that seems like it's a dodged answer nowadays in like, atheistic... I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you understand the question? Not really. So we, give an example of a question... Of something that leads towards discussion, where it just ends up uh, ends up coming to uh, to a discussion where the side of atheists would just be a dodged question, a dodged answer, like just dodging, trying to give like quick answers that like, removes themselves from the uh, subject. I would say maybe the fine the fine tuning of the universe that's perfect from the Big Bang, all the laws of all of the laws of nature that had to be perfectly in place from the second of the Big Bang, that if any one of those things would have been one micron off, there would be no world from the Big Bang. Gravitational pull, gravitational constant, right? Energy, all of those things, all had to be perfectly, it's called the fine-tune, fine-tuning. So what do do atheists have to say about that? How did everything just happen perfectly perfectly? That, that's one of the issues that they have to confront, and that's, you know, so they dodge it with the might with the multiverse theory. Okay, I mean, it, Google the multiverse theory, but I'll just read you. You talk about the rational scientists. I'll just read you a word from Paul Davies, who's a great physicist, and his attitude towards the multiverse theory. Very important. There's one line in there that is very, very important. Where's my, where's my article? 
Oh, here we go. So this is Paul Davies talking about multi. You know, the multiverse theory means that we're one universe. Who is Paul Davies? He's a he's a great philo- he's a great uh, physicist. Okay, one of the big one of the gedolim in physics. Okay, so um, so um, the 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 the, perp- the reason the reasoning of the multiverse theory is that if you run an experiment enough times, you will get a very unexpected result. In other words, if I throw a die and I get a hundred sixes in a row, would you be convinced that it's a loaded die? Yeah. Really, you're not sure. You're not sure. I have a die and I throw it on a six and another six and another six. Okay, after 50 throws of a six, now I'm taking bets on the next toss. Okay, are you going to give me a thousand to one odds that it's going to be a six? Or are you going to give me, no, it's one in six possibility that it's a six? The first time, you, the first time it's a one in six possibility. But after a hundred tosses and I get a hundred sixes in a row, come on, it's loaded. Correct. But if I would make a hundred tosses of the die and I would do that experiment 10 million times, do you think that one of those 10 million experiments would produce a hundred sixes in a row? Well, statistics says yes. Okay, statistics says yes. The more times you do an experiment, the more likely it is that you're going to get an unexpected result. Okay, so the multiverse theory says that we are one universe, that after the Big Bang, everything was perfectly in place for life, but it's one of gazillions and gazillions of parallel universes where after the Big Bang, life didn't exist because the constants were not there. You following the logic? Google multiverse theory and read up on it so you'll understand how that's an attempt to solve the problem of how randomly the Big Bang could lead to, to us being here today. Okay? But listen to Paul, Paul Davies talking about it. The multiverse demands different criteria of a scientific test because the other universes may never be directly observable. This is all theory because they don't exist. We can't see them. But there could be indirect support, for example, statistical analysis, which means if you assume that we're all random, so statistically now the only way we could exist randomly the only way we could exist randomly is if there's gazillions and gazillions of other universes where it didn't happen random, where randomly something else happened. But here's the underline. The, this is word for word from him. The leap of faith needed to accept the existence of a multiverse is greater than that normally expected of scientists. Oh, wow. Wow. Did you just hear two things in that sentence? First of all, every scientist has to have a leap of faith. It's within boundaries, okay? And the multiverse requires a bigger leaf of faith. <laughs> yeah, that's an example of what you're looking for. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, Rob, it seems according to the definition that you laid down, there's sort of two different areas. There's the entirety that the realm laid out, which are fundamental and are describing God and the negative. And for those, you either know them or you don't. And then you have the second level, which is sort of how much it compels your actions. And according to what Roshi Shapiro said, maybe you can have the compelling of the actions without necessarily the first one. But oh, I think the opposite. Why? I think our no, you'll give I think our sources tell us that even a person who has the conviction, okay, will rationalize because they don't want to behave in certain ways because they have lusts, they have drives, they have ego, and therefore the, the head might tell them that something is true but they may behave in a way that's inconsistent with their knowledge. Okay, but there's definitely, like, many people before 
before the Rambam, who weren't aware of these Yikarim, these fundamental principles, who were, who were completely um, believing in the fact that there was an ultimate God. However, they didn't know the philosophy. The philosophical oh, I, I don't, principle that the Rambam laid out. You want to you want to respond to that? So, so just to to clarify, the so are we talking about? Do you want to finish? Sorry. Yeah, I just want to say one more thing. So then, when the Rambam describes like the ultimate, the ultimate purpose on this earth, on this earth is to know God, and I think the Rambam would emphasize the importance of philosophy in, in achieving that goal. As so, the highest level. The highest level. Yeah. So then. Is that philosophy moving towards the first definition, which is establishing those those principles and knowing those to be fundamentally true, or more towards the second one in terms of compelling your actions? I don't think it has. Any, no, I mean the the first the, the actions are compelled by the knowledge are supposed to be compelled by the knowledge of the Creator, and that you were created by God for a purpose. Now go do something with it. So then we we should all be able to achieve that same level of belief in those principles as the Rambam or as anybody else. If it's, if it's a binary... Uh, uh, so if okay. I j- j- jump in, it's, it's, it, yeah, uh, this is like, uh, I think it's similar to what I said at the beginning, there's like a, often an a, a overlap between the philosophy of the Rambam and the idea of the Yikarim. Meaning the Rambam had, even though the, the Yikarim Muna, like the, basically the foundations that people sort of hold to as being the cornerstone of Judaism, but to believe them with perfect faith like the Rambam, why did the Rambam want them so much? One proposed idea is because his philosophy had your knowledge of God being the shape, obviously this is a borrowed term, the shape of your intellect had to mirror the divine. In which case, if you had God's unity not part of your conception of God, you were connecting to some sort of bizarre other deity, but not Hashem. In which case, when you died, Olam was not part of your future. Future, but you know what I mean. But it wasn't, you, weren't, you wouldn't achieve Olam because you achieved Olam through the development of your intellect in line with true beliefs. Now, we generally, as an as assumption, when we talk about the Ikrimun, we don't mean it in that sort of philosophical sense. We mean we grow, and this is sort of in the line of the Abba Benel, defending the Rambam against, I think it was Chaste Kreskas, but the idea that we learn about them. You learn about the idea of God being one. You um, spend time um, going through some arguments, going through the, the Jewish tradition about what we mean by Nevoah, why Moshe was so central, what does it mean that there's a creator of all existence, and you, through the learning of these ideas, you grow in your commitment to the Yikarim. And on that basis, it compels your action. Now, before the people had set up the Yikarim, they were compelled by other things. They were compelled by, I think it was the, the, um, the Rabbi Yosef Abba, put it down to three ideas that people have to be held in mind. You alright? Yeah. Three ideas that you would have to um, hold in mind. And other people had different numbers. Some didn't have any Yikarim. But there was an idea of the Torah, and the Torah itself would compel your actions. I think the philosophy of the Rambam and how we contemporarily relate to the Akarim might be slightly different. Does that make is that, was that, was that sharpen it up a bit? So it's, but if it seems from your definition, it's all about compelling the actions. And however you can get to do that, however you can compel your actions, is, is the ultimate, if the ultimate goal is just to compel your actions, people oh. back in the day did it very different than we do it now with what do you mean by different? Well, well, so, so, yeah, I, 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 I think I'm sorry. Saying no, that's the, the idea that Judaism just cares about your action. That clearly isn't the case. Because not that you're saying that, but the idea that the Torah expects that we love we love God. That's not an action necessary. Does love of God have an action baked into it? Yes, absolutely. There's I'm gonna, no. Oh, 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 no, I, I'm going to disagree. You, you just described orthoprax. Orthoprax. You know what orthoprax is? You've heard the phrase. Orthoprax. They practice Orthodox Judaism, but they don't believe in any of the tenets. 
Meaning, I don't put on tefillin because God demands that I put on tefillin and it has cosmic spiritual effect, etc. I do it because that's what Jews do. Okay? So, no, that's not Judaism. I'm sorry. Judaism is a, it's, it's a, it's a religion of deed, of action, motivated by belief. You can't have belief without action. That's a cardiac Jew. I'm a Jew in my heart, but I don't do anything. But you can't do it and not believe in the principle because why are you doing it? Oh, then it's just a nice social system. It's a nice social structure, except that it costs three times as much money, but otherwise it's a good social structure. So that's not... Judaism is the combination of the belief and that that belief generates actions and those actions are a fulfillment of the will of God. That's Judaism. Correct? I mean, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I agree. And there are also different levels of commitment to each side. Meaning, I, I would say that this is, a, this is a thing I just thought of now, so it might be completely way out. But a person who says that, look, they don't hold to anything of Judaism, but I still want to live out a Jewish life, I still want to keep Shabbos. Why? Because it, it moves me, it, uh, it makes me feel purposeful, etc., etc. This is, this is perhaps unfair to say this about someone, but I would say that on some level, that is still being committed in, a, obviously, a very weak way, but I don't think it completely severs him. Would I be saying on some level, clearly, he's not doing... If he, uh, he's not working towards the ideal, obviously. But a person who's committed to Judaism because he's committed to the Jewish people, at what point am I going to say he's severed his internal movement from Judaism and just being external? I'd say you'd have to be a hardcore orthoprax to really sever it. <laughs> I think a person saying to me, why are you doing this? Yeah, do I believe in God? No, I'm not into the whole God thing, but I'm committed to the Jewish people. I, I'm moved by the Jewish people's mission in the world. Is that completely irreligious? I don't think so. I mean, that could be debated. Am I saying that he's got clearly areas to grow in his emuna? Definitely. But I don't want to say that that severs him. You'd have to be a hardcore orthoprax to like... I've got a good example, actually. There's, a, there's, there's quite heroic people who... I, I call them heroic because they, they, they don't believe in anything, but they have families. They call them themselves reverse Muranos. I met some of them. Like, I, I say that they're heroic because they don't believe in anything, but for the sake of their family, they keep to it. Now, why are they doing it? To keep their family together. They don't believe in anything, but they're keeping their family together. Would I even say there's a religious dimension to that? Yeah. That, that, that there's, there's something, as I said, it's not classic Judaism, clearly, but there's something, something noble about what they're doing. I don't want to sever it completely from what a Jew is here to do, because we would fall into the Rav's question, like, why are you doing it? And then you could go down that whole rabbit hole. But to sever the connection completely between internal and external, I think is like a, quite a mission to try and achieve. I'll, I'll, I would just flesh that out a little bit because when, when you were talking, I was hearing the older generation reformed Jews. They didn't practice Judaism, but they were committed to Judaism and they were committed to the Jewish people. And there was even a period in reformed Judaism, a window where they were committed to the state of Israel, the land of Israel. There was a commitment. Okay, so that kept them connected. All right, what happened? One of two things happened. Either there, three generations later, three generations later after those Reformed Jews, you had one of two outcomes. Intermarriage, and they're not Jewish anymore, or Bali Tshuva. Because they stayed connected. Now that, by the way, that's one of my pieces of evidence of the eternity of the Jewish people. And I always quote a, an article that was in, I think it was in Time Magazine, back in the early 60s. I remember it because it was a big discussion in B'nai Akiva, where the, the sociologists were, were arguing about a prediction. Orthodox Judaism in the early 60s. Now, I don't know if you know what Orthodox Judaism looked like in the early 60s, but it was pretty weak. Okay? And conservative was, was up there, reform was up there, Orthodox was waning, and there was a machlokas. Will Orthodox Judaism disappear in the 60s? 
That was one shita. Or it'll last into the 70s and then disappear. That was the whole machlokas. Okay? Now, so we believing Jews said that's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because Orthodox Judaism is the Torah and the Torah can't disappear. And it didn't. That's, by the way, one of my pieces of evidence of the eternity of the Jewish people and the truth of the Jewish people. You can imagine after the Holocaust, what would the natural reaction be of the Jews? Throw in the towel. It's worth it. Forget it. It's all over. And that was the reaction. That was definitely the reaction. Rav Soloveitchik in one of his seminal articles talked about why the state of Israel in 1948, three years after the Holocaust, was the saving grace, no pun intended, was the saving grace of the Jewish people. Okay? And, and, and that's why many of the Gedolim held that, that Balabatim should say Halel an Yom Ha'atzmaut, even if those Gedolim themselves didn't believe in the, whatever the, you know, the theological importance of the state, because that was their whole connection to Judaism. After the Holocaust, the state of Israel became the whole connection. That, to me, is miraculous. On the one hand, we're at the brink of total annihilation and destruction. And if you study the World War II and some of the, the, the things that went on, right, whether it was uh, the man who wasn't there or, or Turing's uh, uh, breaking of the German codes, like, the war could have turned like that in so easy. And, like, why did we... Why does it always turn out throughout history that the Jews always seem to manage. We always seem to survive. I'm not even talking about the fact that 25% of the Nobel laureates are Jewish in, in all the hard scientists and mathematics. Like, it just, there's an, they just, you know, it gets piled on one more question and another. If this is all coincidence, something's, there, there you know, there's a really, somebody's rolling those dice up there. The dice are loaded if this is, co- <laughs> if this is coincidence. Anyway, that's, uh, that, that's how I would see it. Right. Okay? Okay.